from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. I'm this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 3rd. Today, President Trump's attempts to reshape the Fed, the first enslaved Africans in America, and what happens when white people can't tell their non-white coworkers apart. Most people know Stephen Moore from his TV appearances. He's been a regular on CNN and Fox, among other networks, for the last 20 years, if not longer. They really have to focus on that business tax cut because, Neil... You know, what the Democrats are saying is this just... We did put this tax plan no, together. I, I, I think the business tax cut is essential. I think they need... He has a master's degree in economics and has become one of the biggest champions of tax cuts in the United States. And he helped craft President Trump's big tax cut plan. On Thursday, Stephen Moore withdrew his consideration to be on the board of the Federal Reserve. He cited, quote, unrelenting attacks on my character. And he'd been facing increasing pressure from Democratic and Republican senators. They were concerned about his personal history, his past writings, and his experience with monetary policy. The problem for President Trump is he wants to cut interest rates. And hardly anybody else in the United States thinks that's a good idea. The business community doesn't think that's necessary. Wall Street doesn't think that's necessary. Economists across the political spectrum don't think that's necessary. So he's got a pretty small pool to draw from of people who agree with him right now. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. President Trump Look, he's no dummy. He wants to get reelected in 2020. And to do that, he thinks one of his best selling points is to have a hot economy and a very high stock market. And one of the ways to get the stock market to go higher and to get the economy to continue growing is to cut interest rates. Well, I personally think uh, the Fed should drop rates. I think they really slowed us down. There's no inflation. And so at the moment, President Trump is like fixated on juicing this economy. It's why he wants a big $2 trillion infrastructure bill. It's why he wants more government spending. I would say in terms of quantitative tightening, it should actually now be quantitative easing. Uh, very little, if any, inflation. And I think they should drop rates and they should get rid of quantitative tightening. You would see a, a rocket ship. The problem is almost no one thinks that we should cut interest rates except Stephen Moore. So Stephen Moore wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed in March that was like, Trump is right. We should cut interest rates. And within hours of that op-ed being published, boom, President Trump announces he wants Stephen Moore on the Federal Reserve. And then what happened after that? After that, it got really, really interesting. Uh, Stephen Moore, he doesn't have a, the PhD in economics, which is okay. The current head of the Federal Reserve is a private equity guy and a lawyer. He doesn't have a PhD in, in economics either. So, you know, first people were like, wait a minute, he can't be on the Fed. He doesn't have a PhD. Then people said, no, that, yeah, that's okay. He's Stephen Moore. 
he has some expertise. But then people started to look at what he's been writing and saying for the last three decades, and that's where the eyebrows started to go up. He's done things that are, I would call, iconoclastic, and, and among economists, he's called for a return to the gold standard, which the United States fully abandoned in 1971. So why do we want to go back to that if it wasn't working so well then? Then the statement started to come out that he's also been a big champion of men being the breadwinners in the family. And so he's made some comments that really offended a lot of women (laughs) along the way. It's not a good thing that black women are making more than black men today. In fact, you know, the, the male needs to be the the breadwinner of the family. And one of the reasons I think you've seen the decline of the family, not just in the black community, but also it's happening now in the white community as well, is because women are more uh, economically self-sufficient. And then finally, he also had some It's always these personal issues that really get people. The Washington Post was part of a lawsuit to um, unveil his divorce records. So it it came to light. He didn't pay his ex-wife what he was supposed to pay her by a lot, by over $300,000. He also was in a fight with the Internal Revenue Service. He had uh, underpaid his taxes. So people started to look around like, is this really the person we want in one of the top economic jobs in this country? So that's when you saw a lot of senators, even Senate Republicans, saying, like, look, we don't think that we're going to be able to support this guy. Maybe if you could explain, like, what does the Fed do? Because I think a lot of people don't actually understand that. And why was Stephen Moore maybe not the right person to do that? So the the easiest way to think about the Federal Reserve is it's a lot like the air conditioning and heating in your home. You sort of take it for granted, but it helps the day-to-day run in your home, and you don't notice it until it breaks down, and then it's a really big problem. And the Federal Reserve basically plays that role for the economy. It makes sure that trying to keep the temperature stable, which is another way of saying it's trying to keep unemployment low, keep people employed, and they try to keep the cost of living. So prices for everything from bananas to cars to gas. You know, they're trying to keep prices relatively stable. So similar to trying to keep that temperature in your home at about a comfortable rate. And the way that they do that is mainly through two things. One is setting those interest rates that Trump has been talking a lot about lately. The other one is monitoring banks. Sort of they keep an eye on to make sure banks aren't aren't doing anything wrong and that they're lending enough. But all these other issues kind of bypass the fact that there might have been reasons why Stephen Moore wasn't fit from like an economic expertise standpoint. Well, this is a hot debate. I'd say two key things to keep in mind. Number one, Steve Moore has made a name for himself in Washington, D.C. and and on the TV circuit as an expert on tax cuts and the budget. He hasn't been making a lot of comments about the Federal Reserve. At times in the recent years, he's even said he's, quote, not a monetary policy expert. (laughs) So, you know, that's a little he sort of admitted he's that's not his forte. Because fundamentally, the Fed doesn't deal with tax cuts or the budget. They deal with monetary policy. Exactly. The other thing that's got a lot of people scratching their head when he first got nominated is um, Steve Moore has claimed that the economy is currently experiencing deflation, where prices are literally falling. Both of the rate hikes were unnecessary and have caused a deflation in the economy. And I think there is no wait, 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 wait. I want to stop you there. I want to stop you there because you said this last time I was on with you. There is no deflation. No, there is not. Mm -hmm. 
We are not seeing that. We're seeing low inflation. But as anybody who has ever gone to yoga class lately or gone to the store knows, prices are still increasing a little bit. It's not skyrocketing. We're in a pretty good position. So people were like, wait a minute, does he even know what he's talking about if he's claiming that we've got deflation when we don't? And he also had called 10 years ago when the country was in a big crisis, the market was falling, it felt like the sky was falling, people were losing their jobs and their homes. He was calling for the Federal Reserve at that moment to raise interest rates, which is like slamming the brakes on the economy. That would have been totally the wrong thing to do. So again, on monetary policy, people were like, wait a minute, this guy's views don't make any sense. When it comes to the Federal Reserve, historically, the idea behind it has been that it is independent from the White House and that what the president wants to happen on monetary policy isn't necessarily what the Federal Reserve will actually enact. But we're seeing with President Trump and his and his nominations or, in, or attempted nominations that he's trying to put in people who share his political views and his ideas of what to put in place. What is the risk of that? And, and is the Federal Reserve getting more politicized? The biggest risk of politicizing the Federal Reserve is in evidence in countries like Argentina and Turkey and Zimbabwe. And that is in a worst case scenario in those countries when you start packing your central bank with a bunch of political cronies. Basically, the whole financial system tanks because people don't trust what's going on there anymore and people stop investing in the country. Now, is that totally going to happen in the United States overnight? Like, let's say Stephen Moore got on the Fed. No. But it begins to chip away at that dynamic. And what happens is if we roll the clock back to 2008 and 2009, when the world and particularly the U.S. was really in a crisis moment, it was the Federal Reserve that bailed us out. It was the United States Fed that sat there and got really creative about ways to pump money into the economy and rescue our financial system and ultimately our economy. And that's why the U.S. recovered faster than Europe or other parts of the world. And if we have political cronies on there, you know, the problem becomes, would people trust the Fed's actions to be the right actions for the long term? And I think the answer begins to be no. Heather, thank you so much. Thank you. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. This year is the 400th anniversary of when the first enslaved Africans were brought to colonial America. The first specific person that we know of lived in the Jamestown colony in what's now known as Virginia. Her name was Angela. She arrived in 1619 on a pirate ship called the Treasurer. That's Deneen Brown. I'm a reporter at the Washington Post, and I cover many Black history stories for the blog called Retropolis. Two years ago, archaeologists launched an archaeological dig at the Jamestown site, and they're searching for any clues of Angela. They're hoping to provide some kind of dignity to her story. Deneen went to Jamestown to see the archaeological site for herself. 
I jumped in my car and drove to Jamestown because I had heard about this. I, I just wanted to see the site. And I got there just in time for this tour that this curator was doing specifically about Angela. Well, one African whose name we know from 1619 was Angela, a woman whose name we know was one of the first 32 Africans or so who would have been a part of this 1619 to 1620 horrible experience. When I walked from the visitor center to the banks of the Jamestown River, I felt this heaviness, this sadness. It's almost like the place is haunted by this really sad history but very important history because we want to know so much more about the first African woman to be documented to arrive in this colony. What little we do know comes from historical records and the ongoing dig. We know when she arrived in colonial America, what her captors named her, and where she lived. But the trail of evidence about her story stops a few years after her arrival in Jamestown. For Deneen, though, all of the things that happened to Angela before she came to the colony are what really stand out. She was forced to march more than 100 miles from her village to a slave ship, which was run by the Portuguese. She was packed on the slave ship, which was headed for Veracruz. It was on the coast of Mexico. The slave ship was intercepted by pirate ships. One was called the Treasurer. The other was called the White Lion. There were about 350 Africans aboard who were chained, and the pirates took off about 60. We don't know what happened to the rest of the Africans aboard the ship, but Angela was among the 60 that the pirates took off. So historians say she's the first documented African to arrive on the colony of what is Virginia She was listed in the 1624 census by name as Angela, and she's also listed in the 1625 census by the name Angola of the treasurer. And what do we know about what her life was like after she arrived in Virginia? They don't know much about her life. Uh, They know that she lived in the household of William Pierce, who was a captain. He was a wealthy merchant. They're not quite sure what kind of work she did, whether she was a servant or they're speculating that she was a servant. This was before there were slave codes in Virginia. So some historians call her indentured, but many argue that, you know, she was an enslaved person. And so Angela had arrived in Virginia in this, like, critical moment in the development of America. Right. The historian I talked to, Jim Horn, said she arrived in this kind of great paradoxical moment at the creation of democracy, but also at the time that slavery began in what's now the United States. Jamestown was a colony. It was in 1619. At the time of her arrival, it was this muddy place that was really dangerous, that had really bad characters. It had pirates. (laughs) It had colonists who had survived the starving time where there was cannibalism and people ate each other. There were Indian wars that had wiped out many of the colonists before Angela had arrived. But Angela's arrival coincided with the meeting of the first General Assembly in Jamestown. It's the this legislative body that's created in Jamestown, the longest continuous legislative body in America. So it's the beginning of a government. So for a long time, we didn't really hear much about Angela as this 
first African person to come to the U.S. and was there in Jamestown at this critical period. But recently, researchers started taking more interest. Why did that happen? From my reporting, what I I hear is the researchers in Virginia want to expand the narrative of the history of the country, and particularly to include the Africans who arrived. They call them the first Africans who arrived in 1619. So throughout history, their stories were often excluded from textbooks. Many of us don't know much about the history of African people in this country. So there's this push to tell a broader story that's more inclusive. You know, when you're coming up in class in school, you learn about the founding fathers. You learn about, like, we knew the name of John Ralph. We knew the name of Pocahontas. But until now, many people didn't know the name of Angela. So that brings a whole group of people into our country's history. And they now have this person that they can relate to in some way. And it helps to fill in the pieces, the missing pieces of the puzzle of what is our missing culture. Missing because of the the whole horrible slave trade where people were ripped from their countries and whipped if they spoke their language. And many Black Americans now, they just don't have that identity, that information. So I think people are happy to know as much as they can about her. Even though we don't know her real name, we don't know her age, we don't know that she had children, we don't know whether she married. We don't know what happened to her after the 1625 census. She disappears from records. Did she live longer? We don't know. Danine L. Brown is an Enterprise reporter for The Post. One more thing. So my name is Rachel Hatsi Panagos, and I write for the About Us Race and Identity newsletter at The Post. If you're a person of color, you might have experienced this thing where you get confused with someone else at work who is vaguely the same race as you. It's happened to me. It's happened to Rachel. And so I put out this question just on Twitter, trying to see what the response would be like. And I was really overwhelmed with how many people were engaging with it and sharing their stories. My name is Nicholas Pillapil. And I'm Jonathan Castanian. Two of those people were Nicholas and Jonathan. They used to work together in the same office, and their desks were right next to each other. We're just two Asian-American guys. And people just never seem to learn our names. Or rather, they knew our names. They just didn't know which name belonged to which person. After about like two and a half or three months, it just kept happening. People would look at us and go ask our boss and be like, which one's which? One day, they just kind of decided they had had enough of it, and they set up a sign that said, This workplace has been through X amount of days without an incident. And so we would count the days. There was no mix-up. They would go like, 
five days without an incident or seven days, but they never got past like, I think 12 or 14 days without it happening to us. Eventually we got asked to take it down because it was making people feel uncomfortable. We're like, well, that's weird. It's uncomfortable for us that people can't learn our names or can't figure this situation out. Experts say that this is called the cross-race effect. Everyone has trouble identifying and telling people apart who are a different race from yourself. It's something that is not necessarily inherently malicious. This is a cognitive process that can happen in any environment where there is a minority versus a majority. And so because whites are the majority in most workplaces and because societally speaking in the U.S., whites are the majority in film and television, it's more likely that whites will have difficulty telling people of color apart than vice versa. Of course, it's one thing when maybe somebody on the street mistakes you for someone else or mistakes you for a celebrity that happens to be of your same race or identity, but it's a total another when it's someone who you see every single day and really should be able to know your name by now. If people continue to do that, that means they're not really looking at you when they talk to you. They're not really taking you in when they have a conversation with you. Most people said they felt undervalued, underappreciated, and just like they're not their own individual in their own workplace. A lot of people expressed concern that it meant that by, you know, them being interchangeable with the other person in their office of the same ethnicity, maybe their coworker wasn't doing something correctly and they were getting blamed for it or vice versa. And you're never really getting the full credit that you should be getting because people can't tell you apart from one from the other. I was always aware that, yeah, I'm like an Asian American person, but until like all this stuff started happening, I was like, oh, wow, like I'm very different. Like, and you see me as that, like it made me very aware of, I guess, how we are a minority. And they're like tiny little paper cuts because it's not, you know, someone shouting the N-word at you on the street. It's kind of these everyday little slights that just make you feel like less of a person. Rachel talked to experts who said that the best way to deal with situations like this is to call them out right away. Stopping the incident and saying, you know, that interaction made me feel blank. Can we have a conversation about that? Looking back on it, I think maybe we could have done it in a more direct way instead of like, I guess, a very passive aggressive way. I don't regret it, though, because it was really funny. Rachel Hatsipinagos writes for the About Us Race and Identity newsletter at The Post. You can find a link to subscribe and a link to her story at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music and does sound design for the show. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. 
I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.